Hey, everybody. Good morning. Great joy to be with you here at Spanish River. If you're new with us, I've had the opportunity this morning to meet several new folks, new students at FAU and at Lynn. Welcome, you and your families, people that are uh, coming back in from out of town. It's a joy to be with you. My name is David Cassidy, and I'm the lead pastor here at Spanish River Church. And uh, I've appreciated the nautical storm theme running through the hymnody this morning, anchors holding within the veil. Uh, this last week, I, I, I was able to complete my hurricane preparation kit. I am ready to go. I just want you to know this Tennessee guy is ready. Um, uh, I've got uh, uh, 20 gallons of gasoline in the garage. I've got, uh, my generator is out of the box. Uh, there's, you know, canned food we're stacking up. Every time I go to the grocery store, I buy more water. The buckets are purchased. We're ready to fill the tubs. I got duct tape for the windows and anything else that duct tape can fix, which is all things along with WD-40. That's really all you need in life. And so I'm, I'm ready to go. And, but, and I hope you are ready too, but how many of us are praying for hurricanes? Yeah, nobody, I didn't think so, that's right. I did, I did um, sit one time through an, uh, a, a, a Cat 1 up on the Gulf uh, and I was terrified, absolutely terrified. And you're all looking at me like, pansy. Uh, so, you know, we'll see how it all goes. Why do we make preparation for the storms, whether they're right on the horizon or not. In fact, if you wait for the horizon, sometimes you can be caught up short. We make preparation because that's the reality of the world in which we live. We live in a world of storm. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century Baptist preacher in London, said if a pastor speaks to his congregation about suffering, he will always have a congregation that is well-fed and growing because every single person is either in a storm, just coming out of a storm, or getting ready to go into a storm. And so we're gonna spend a couple of Sundays together on this theme of suffering. I began it last, a uh, couple of weeks ago, fortnight ago, looking at Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd. And he moves from somebody we just talk about to someone we know face to face in the valley of the shadow. We move from he is the one who is our shepherd to you are the one who is with me. So we need to understand hope in the valley of the shadow. And take on board a biblical theology of suffering. Now this morning, your life may, may not this morning be characterized by any sorrow, any pain, any, any kind of suffering whatsoever. It may be all rainbows, unicorns for you today. And if that's, that's true, I, I rejoice with you, I really do. But the truth is that if we looked around and we could sit down with everybody in the congregation this morning, we would hear as we shared together, testimonies of sorrow. In some cases where we wonder where God is with us in that sorrow, in other times how God has met us in those sorrows and we know that it was his hand, we would find various levels of kinds of suffering. Because suffering isn't something that's merely physical, it's also something which can be psychological. It's something which is relational. Suffering can be material. All of these things are characteristic of the storms in life that we endure. And so you might think, well, I, I don't really want to hear anything about suffering. I really, I, I, I'm already depressed. 
you know, I, I have a friend who's a dental hygienist and she likes to tell dental office stories. And she told me one about a fellow who was a very nervous patient came in and sat down in the dental chair to get a, a root canal. And the dentist came in and put the injections in to numb everything up, left while the medicine took effect, came back in a few moments later, and the guy was up out of the chair. And he was standing next to the instruments that were going to be used and moving them. And he said, what are you doing? Why are you messing with the instruments? He goes, I'm taking out the ones I don't want used. So we can do that with the Bible. We can, we can look at what the scriptures teach us about certain things and go, I don't want that part. But actually, sometimes it's the parts of the Bible we didn't underline that we need the most. And 2 Corinthians is one of those letters. 2 Corinthians is probably a part of the, the body of work that Paul gave to the church that doesn't get as much attention as it deserves. And that's largely because it deals so much with suffering. Paul suffered greatly. And in chapter one, verses three and following, I want to invite you to read along. You can do so on the screens. Or if you've got a Bible, a printed version or an app, please open that up, follow along. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter one, verses three and following. And please note that far from being somebody who is trapped by his suffering, somebody who has been consumed by it or embittered by it, Paul talks to the Corinthians about his suffering in the form of a praise offering to God. Blessed be, this text begins. It begins with a word of benediction, of blessing, of praise, of offering thanks to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. As we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are Comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. We know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. I want to just pause there for a second. You might think an apostle of Jesus felt that such a weight of internal despair that he didn't think his life would go on. That's how weighty it was for this particular man and he's transparent about it. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't hide the pain of those moments. And he goes on to say, he says, indeed, we felt that we had received a death sentence. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us 
from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again, and you also must help us by your praying so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. I want to talk to you this morning about the believer's suffering, the believer's comfort, and the believer's hope. Let's talk about suffering for just a moment. Suffering is not unique to the Christian. It's not even uniquely human. The atheist Richard Dawkins is always quick to point out how red in tooth and claw nature is, and he um, often speaks about this is some evidence for the fact that God does not exist when in fact all he's doing is affirming that we live in a fallen, broken world, as Paul writes in Romans chapter eight, that the whole creation is groaning under the weight of the sin and high treason and rebellion which we have committed against God. And we know that's true. We know that the whole world is full of suffering. All you have to do is watch a National Geographic special like you have on some evenings and you've sat there rooting for the gazelle against the cheetah. Run, gazelle, run. And then you turn away when the gazelle, you know, loses, right? You want, you want the lonely gazelle to get away. You know that nature is full of these things and um, occasionally bugs that bite the legs of pastors. (laughs) But suffering is something that comes upon all humans in a whole host of ways, psychological, material, and spiritual. Paul spoke here about a despair that weighed him down, that he felt like he was going through every single day with a death sentence over him, and he felt the weight of that in his life. So what is uniquely Christian about the experience of suffering? Well, what is uniquely Christian is the way in which we see it, how we receive it, what we do with it. It is very different. It is not what most people think, to be honest. Hinduism views suffering as karma. If you are suffering today, Hinduism would tell you, you are suffering because you deserve it. You did something really bad in a previous life, and now this time around, you are paying for it. First of all, how many of us are glad there's not gonna be any more times around. Once is enough. Once is enough, all right? So karma, that's the answer. It's like living in Groundhog Day with Bill Murray without end. Buddhism has a kind of form of karma, but it's, it's not just that you did something bad, but you distinctly broke one of the Buddha's commands, the, the Dharma. And so you are, again, getting what you deserve. In relativism, materialistic, atheistic relativism, suffering has no meaning and purpose whatsoever beyond blind chance. If something bad happens, that's just the way it is. The great purge is going on. That's, that's what's happening. Nature is biting back. It's just random. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. If you're dying, please get on with it and decrease the surplus population. We're near 8 billion. And really all that's going on is that there's an evolutionary process that's taking place that's allowing the stronger of us to survive through that kind of selective process. So please, 
just be quiet about it all. Stop whining and go away. But Christianity encounters the suffering and comes to their aid and steps in. Why? Because Paul writes in this text about who God is. The father of mercies and the God of all comfort. How did Paul discover the father of mercies and the God of all comfort? Where do you meet the one who is the Lord, who is the shepherd, but now you are with me? Paul met him in his own suffering. He saw that God does not leave the human race and the whole creation in its pain and in its misery. God, in fact, entered the world, the whole cosmos. He took the whole cosmos onto himself in the person of Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, and he entered into our world. It turns out, and this is what is unique about the Christian view, the biblical view of suffering, is that it is by suffering that God saves the world. God does not stand aloof from our suffering. He does not see us in our leprous condition, in our damaged condition and go, I don't know if I can get close to that. God enters into our suffering, makes our suffering his own. He is born in weakness to a poverty-stricken family on the margins of society at a time in history when the average life expectancy was 21 because infant mortality was so high. He was born into a race of people who were ethnically persecuted by empire after empire and hounded and crucified by their thousands. He came and he embraced poverty. And when Jesus Christ did miracles and taught with wisdom, the response he was given was largely one of rejection. He was falsely accused, he was put on trial, he was beaten to a pulp, he was taken out and received the 39 lashes that the Romans dished out. He bore that pain and that suffering and then as an exile, he took the cross and he carried it outside Jerusalem and he hung there on that cross between heaven and earth. The artists show him wearing a loincloth over his midsection. But that's not how Romans crucified people. They crucified him naked. They exposed him. They shamed them to the whole world. And he hung there naked and ashamed and he did this to enter every single level of human suffering and pain because God does not leave us alone in our pain and in our suffering. He enters it, he makes it his own. And while he was there on that cross, he took to himself all of the guilt and the punishment and the shame associated with our guilt and shame everything we deserved. He took it to himself, and when Jesus died, our guilt and shame, all the penalty for our sin, died with him, and he cried out, it is finished. This is the God who comes near to us. But here's the other thing. His suffering has not finished. And you say, well, wait a minute. I thought you just said, he said, it is finished. Well, that means paid in full, but Christ, you see, suffers. He not only drew near in history in our suffering, Christ suffers still in the lives of his people. Because here's what happens. When you become a Christian, you are united to Christ. He comes to live in you and you live in him. 
And this means, hear this, when you suffer, Christ suffers with you. And there is no other faith in the world that teaches that. That Christ is in you. And so when you suffer, he suffers with you. Paul learned this on the road to Damascus. He's going down the road to Damascus. He's Saul of Tarsus at this time. He's a Pharisee. He's persecuting the church. Jesus appeared to him. And you remember as he strikes him down and Saul's laying there in the dirt seeing this vision, he looks up and he hears Christ ask him a question. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? You finish it. Why are you persecuting me? He had never seen Jesus. He never stretched out his hand directly against Jesus. But as he goes on to relate his testimony, he had arrested believers. He had given testimony against them so that they would be imprisoned and put to death. He saw them stoned to death. And he understood in that moment, you can't touch a believer without touching Christ. Why? Because Christ is in you. Christ suffers in our suffering. And that's why Paul would go on to say that he, in a very curious passage in Colossians chapter 1, is making up for what is lacking, Colossians 1.24, in the sufferings of Christ on behalf of others. And you go, lacking in the sufferings of Christ? What is he talking about? How can anything be lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Well, what it is is the sufferings that the church is called upon. You and I tend to think that suffering is because our barca lounger won't unfold. <laughs> suffering is because we got a real, we got the middle seat on the flight and there is a crying baby behind us. That's suffering. But you know, across the world today, Christians are suffering. They're suffering, their churches are being destroyed, their Bibles are being burned, they're being persecuted and assaulted. In many nations across the world, they have a different idea of suffering. That's not meant to diminish the suffering that we do experience. Paul says, we will, in Romans chapter eight, reign with Christ. We will reign with Christ and we all look forward to that day. We have the keys to Zion City, we will reign with him. But he says, we will reign with him if we suffer with him. You see, my friends, our suffering is a partnership with Christ. It's what Paul called in Philippians chapter three, the fellowship of his sufferings. And that is why he comes to us. That's why he is the God of all mercies and the the father of mercies, the God of all comfort, he comes near to us. And comfort there does not mean patting you on the hand and saying they're there. Comfort is the same word that Jesus used about the Holy Spirit. I will send you another comforter, a helper. It means the one who stands alongside you to strengthen you. God comes to us in our suffering to bring us his strength. So what is the comfort of a Christian? Look at chapter one, verses three and four. Here Paul writes that we meet God, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that, would you say that with me? So that. So there's a purpose in the suffering. 
we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. So not only is God revealed as the God who suffers, the God who saves the world by suffering, not only is God near us in our suffering and makes his suffering our own, he is present with us in it, he also has a design and a purpose in it. Let me give you a few things about the believer's comfort. Here's that first thing. There's a purpose in it. There's a purpose in it. And the first purpose is to prepare us to minister to other people. Now, if you're in the middle of suffering, you don't want to hear that. And by the way, if you're ministering to somebody who's in suffering, don't tell them that. Don't walk up to them and say, you know, there's a purpose in that. You know, I know that. But if I'm suffering, what do I want? Out. That's what I want. I just want to get better. I want this to be over with. I want this pain to go away. But what happens is, as we continue to walk with Jesus, we begin to pray, Lord, deepen my experience of you. I had a friend who called me while I was on that 15-day stay in the hospital. He'd been through the very same thing I'd been through. He described the very same symptoms. And he, as he described to me what he had gone through and then began to tell me about the recovery period, I knew that his track record was a guide for where I would be going because he'd had the same experience. If you're going through a painful divorce and you can talk with someone who has been through a painful divorce and they can tell you about how Jesus met them in it and how Jesus met them on the other side of that and restored everything that was broken, how God healed their heart, that's a help to you. If you've buried someone who you loved and then you sit with someone else who knows that grief. You know the comfort that that can bring in the fellowship of suffering. And so one of the things that happens is that we're being made like Jesus. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he drew near to people in their pain. Here's the second thing. We are a witness to others. You see, by our suffering now, because Christ is present in our suffering, we are witnessing through our suffering to other people. Our sufferings point to the sufferings of Jesus. We point to him and you go, well, how does that happen? Because we're present as vessels of mercy even in a hospital. When Ron and I were in the hospital in ICUs, different ICUs at the same time, and I called him and I said, why don't we just do a church plant in the hospital? Tim Keller was in the hospital too at the very same time and he thought what we should do is just form a club for pastors who don't ever want to spend any more nights in any more hospitals. But we were witnessing there, while he was in the hospital, Miriam got in an elevator and with a man who was despondent, downcast, and she reached out to him, why are you downcast, why are you despondent? His wife had just had a baby and she, the baby had a, a, a heart problem. And he was so down, and Miriam, out of her experience, of course, could tell, tell him, can I just talk to you about the story of someone I know who in infancy was born with a heart problem and how God has met us in that? Can I just ask you, what are the chances of those two people meeting just there in that elevator at that moment? You see, we bear witness to people in our suffering. And here's the final thing Paul says in this purpose issue. He says, this is very important. He says, this is down in uh, verse 9. 
we had the sentence of death in ourselves, and this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Can I tell you something else that God's purpose is in suffering? God's purpose is in suffering is to eradicate the myth of control that we possess. God brings us to the end of who we are. When you're laying in a hospital and you got tubes going into both arms and you can't even move your head, and you're, lay, you know, you're not sitting there going, but I need to preach on Sunday. You're just, you're, you're, you're at the end of your resources. You're at the end of your plans. You are not in control anymore. If you've had a heart attack and they're trying to help you get better, you're on a different timetable. You didn't write that into the day planner for the week, did you? And for the next several weeks, it's going to be a a different principle around which your whole life is organized. You've been brought to the end of your own strength. Paul said later in 2 Corinthians 12 that the thorn in the flesh he had was given to him so that he would confess that he was weak. He was weak and boast in his weaknesses. And God said, when Paul, you confess your weakness, my power is made perfect in you. Now, that's a great verse. We all love that verse. My power is made perfect in weakness. But how many of us love to discover how weak we are? No, that's not the way our society is structured. It's not the way we do life. We want everybody to know how strong we are. We want everybody to know we don't limp. But when God met Jacob, Jacob left that encounter walking with a limp. And when Christ comes into your life, he will teach you through suffering not to rely on yourself. This is the believer's comfort. And so finally, we have to find the believer's hope. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says here about hope. I want you to catch this. It says in verse 10, God delivered us from this deadly peril and he will deliver us and on him we have set our hope. Everyone's suffering is unique but everyone's hope is the same. Christ. This week I read this from a friend of mine who's a a pastor. I don't have the words to express the deep pain and the sadness my family and I have experienced since my wife died three months ago. The world is less than it was when she was in it. Suicide steals more than life. It takes the ground out from under the survivors. She didn't leave a note, only unanswered questions. Why did this happen? Why didn't I see it coming? What could I have done differently? Why didn't she reach out for help? We will never know what she was thinking, what came upon her, how her mind processed, which caused and prompts led her to act on impulse, why she did something so contrary to her deepest convictions and affections. There are no answers, just pain and grief and absence. He goes on to write, the winter was rough, but spring seemed to bring hope for greater healing. Her friends, her counselor, her psychiatrist, myself, all commented on how much seemed to be improving. 
We spent a week away from our kids on an island in the Caribbean. We made plans for the summer. And then she was gone. I'll never understand. Every cell in my body wants to rebel against the very real fact that she is gone. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. You see, friends, when you're in the middle of the affliction, when you feel with Paul that despair, when you feel the sentence of death, you can say with this pastor and with Paul, it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. You can't make sense of it. And the reason for that is because we don't have the perspective that God has. But he will meet us in it. He will redeem it. When Jonathan Edwards preached his very first sermon at the age of 18, he made three points. Three points in his very first sermon. First of all, he said, your bad things will work out for your good and God's glory, Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The second thing, your best things can never be taken away. Your best things can never be taken away. Romans 8, 37 and following, Paul says, we know that we are not just sheep to be slaughtered. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither life nor death, nor angels or principalities, any kind of suffering, any kind of affliction, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And the third point he said is the best of all things are yet to come. Paul said that the suffering we experience now, Romans chapter eight, verse 17, the suffering of this age is not worthy to be compared with the glory that's coming. And so Edwards concluded his sermon this way. God is the highest good of the creature and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, children or the company of earthly friends are shadows of this. The enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but the scattered beams. God is the sun. These are the streams. God is the fountain. These are the drops. God is the ocean. That's why this pastor concluded what he wrote this way. I write all of these things simply to give a context for those who are struggling with the unanswered questions. There are no answers in the valley of the shadow of death, but I am told and I still believe that this is where the good shepherd resides, walking hand in hand with his beloved children. And by his grace, I am one of them. By his grace, I can call him good. And by his grace, I hope in the resurrection and the life. And by his grace, I hope to persevere through this world and see her in the world to come. And for now, I have many, many tears, but he promises to wipe each one of them away for good. This is not the end. Who can write, this is not the end? What is that? That's hope. If you fix your hope on riches and you lose your business, your hope is gone. If you fix your hope on the love of your children and your children say, I hate you, your hope is gone. If you fix your hope on a pastor or a church and they get in trouble, your hope is gone. If you fix your hope on a husband or a wife and they leave you, your hope is gone. If you fix your hope on beauty and health, 
And then the doctor says you have cancer, your hope is gone. But if you fix your hope on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then you have a hope which will see you through every trial, will see you through death itself to the golden shore, a hope that will never perish, a hope that is rooted not in this world, but in the age to come in Jesus himself, who is the hope who will never, ever fail us. That is why we should stand and sing now one of the great hymns you can ever sing in any storm. It is well with my soul. Would you stand with me? Come and stand. Let's pray. Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Be near your suffering people. You are suffering, Lord Jesus, in our sufferings. You are with us in our pain. And you have promised to dry our tears. We do not come asking you to understand all that you are doing in the sufferings that we face. But we do ask you to be near us. And we ask them, we ask, Lord, that you would use these seasons to deepen our dependence on you, to bring us to the end of our folly, our foolish ideas of control, and to help us to admit our weakness and to find that your power is enough. Jesus, our hope is in you. You who died on the cross, you who rose again, you who by your blood purges every sin. Come, Lord, and be near your people, we pray, so that we may be able to say in every storm, it is well with my soul. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. <laughs>